I wonder what comes to mind when we think about the word love. When we say we love someone or something, what are we actually saying? What do we mean when we say we love someone? We say we love God. We say we love our families. We say we love our church. We say we love our friends. But we also say we love things like sports. I'm from Michigan, but I know that everyone here loves the Detroit Pistons. Amen? Especially when they were called the bad boys, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, and they beat teams like the Magic. Magic Johnson and the LA Lakers and Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Their defense, their defense was tenacious. It was tough. But I digress because my point is not about the Pistons. But about love. The word love just rolls right off our tongue. We use this word to describe what we like. What we care about. What we enjoy. For example, I love my wife. I love my children. But I may also say I love a good ribeye steak. A fresh cheeseburger. A fresh baked chocolate chip cookie. We may be getting a little hungry. Again, love is used so broadly, so generally, it loses its true meaning, its real identity. We forget the gravity of the meaning of love. Love has not only lost its meaning, but it's been hijacked by many wrong views of love as well. We see Hollywood's view of love, where stars hook up, live together, get married, and get divorced all in one month's time. This is not love. Biblical love is not based on infatuation or lust. The love we're talking about is not a burning desire, a inward feeling, an emotional high. Biblical love comes from God, which means this love is eternal. It is a love that lasts, a love that gives, a love that does what is best for someone else, a love that sacrifices. That's the love we're talking about this morning. Our text is a very familiar text. It's a passage that has been stretched so thin that it's lost its depth. It's all factor even to most believers. The passage is none other than John 3.16. So open your Bibles to John 3.16 where we'll be at this morning. And as we dive down deep and explore this wonderful passage again, I want us to see it afresh. I want us to look at it with new eyes and see what Christ has in store for us this morning. As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, I ask, Father, that you help us to be in awe of your love that you have shown to us in so many ways especially with your son being sacrificed on our behalf. Help us, Father, to live out a life of love, being led by the power of your spirit, recognizing the times that we live in. We recognize that your eternal love will draw men to you. We thank you for that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal 
life. But before we actually jump into this passage, explore this text, it's important that we look at the context. What is going on for Christ to say such a profound statement? If we remember from last week, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and they began to discuss salvation, how someone is born again, and all that means is someone to become a Christian, how they actually are saved. And Nicodemus was a knowledgeable teacher of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was a theologian of the day, as Casey mentioned last week. So Christ goes below the surface because Nicodemus is a teacher, because he's a leader. And he goes below the surface, and we get to hear what causes someone to actually come to faith. We hear some of the doctrine, the theology of salvation. What is under someone choosing to follow Christ? What is under someone believing and repenting? What is going on below the surface? The inner workings of what God is doing in those who come to faith in Christ Jesus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit is the one that draws men to him. Jesus says the Holy Spirit must be working on us for us to come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the context of our passage this morning. Christ teaching Nicodemus that God is sovereign even over salvation. Which leads us to John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus tells us the why behind salvation. The reason that God the Father gives eternal life. Which leads to point number one. Salvation is motivated from a heart of love. Point number one says that salvation is motivated from a heart of love. We can see that it wasn't out of drudgery or compulsion or boredom that God saved man. It wasn't like God thought, you know, really, I don't have much to do today. I'm a little bored. I think I'm going to make a people for myself. And have them entertain me for the rest of eternity. That's not what God did. No, God is perfect and all his ways are pure, which means God started from a heart of love towards us. Amen? Amen. A love that focused on what was best for us. First John tells us that God is love. But in John 3.16, we see who is the focus of God's love. For God so loved the world. The so here means in this passage, it doesn't show more of God's love, the quantity or the amount of God's love per se, but the so puts emphasis or intensity on what God is loving. The so reveals where God's love is directed. For God so loved the world. Jesus says the Father's love is focused, it's centered, it's poured out on the world, his creation. This idea would have been shocking in the first century because God's love was focused on the Israelites. His love was centered on the chosen people, the Jews. But now we see that his love has reached the ends of the earth. His love was poured out on men and women alike regardless a background, and race. 
Can we just sit and soak on that for a second? For God so loved the world. The creator who created us was motivated with a heart of love. This is the God we serve. Are we in awe that God would love us? That he would pay any attention or mind to us? That he would be so involved and have such care for his creation? But you may be thinking, how do I know if God really loves us that much? Where's the proof? Where's the proof in that? And I understand because some of us may be skeptical. We may be fearful of this idea of being loved. Many of us have been through bad situations and experiences with those who said they loved us. We may have been open and vulnerable with someone who took advantage of us. Who we thought had our best interest at heart. But in reality, we were left abandoned, rejected, and hurt by people who said they loved us. But at the same time, it's not only that others have hurt us, but we have also hurt others. Our love in many cases has not lived up to the standards that we expect from others. We have been hurt by others, but I know for a fact that we have also hurt others as well. But God's love is not like our love. His love is selfless, not selfish. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's love was not in words, but his love was shown by his actions. God's love is revealed in his giving, in what he sacrificed on our behalf. This leads to point number two. The depth of God's love was revealed through the sacrifice of his only son. Let me say that again. The depth of God's love was revealed through the sacrifice of his only son. God gave his most precious treasure, his son. Think about your own children and how we hold them so dear. Think about the fellowship. Think about the relationship we have with our children. Think about the love. Think about the care, the blessings, the memory, the joy. God sacrificed what was most precious, what was most valuable to him, his one and only son. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, that is Christ, who had no sin to be sin for so that in him we might be, have become the righteousness of God. Can we imagine such sacrificial, selfless love God displayed on our behalf? You may be thinking, that is a great sacrifice. That is amazing. But at least it was for people who deserved it. Those that should be saved, right? Christ died for the good people of the world. Those that never get mad. Those that never have bad attitudes or evil thoughts. Those that never have a bad day. Those that never struggle with pride. Those who have perfect motives. 
Christ died for the righteous people who always put others above themselves, the husband who always leads his family selflessly, and the wife who always follows her husband perfectly. The teenager who always listens to his parents because he knows his parents always know best. Right? These are the type of people Christ died for. Isn't that what scripture says? That Christ died for the already good, the already righteous? The problem is, if we're already good, then why would Christ have to die in the first place? Why would God sacrifice his son if we were already righteous? If that was the case, then humanity wouldn't need a savior at all. They would save themselves, in essence. Let's turn to Romans 3, 10 through 18. Romans 3, 10 through 18, which describes the reality of humanity. Paul the Apostle says this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. Venom of ashes under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Scripture says there are none that are good, none that are righteous, none that seek after God. All have gone their own way. And because of this, Scripture says humanity is worthless. So instead of Christ dying for good people, Christ died for evil, wicked, bad people. His enemies, the very people that hated him, the very people that killed him, the ones who had no desire to follow him, who lived in rebellion, are the very ones that he died for. Which leads to point number three. The depth of God's love was revealed in sacrificing his best for sinners. The depth of God's love was revealed in sacrificing his best for sinners. That's why Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? We are those sinners. You are those sinners. I am the sinner. God loved us at our worst. When we were most unlovable, when we were living for ourselves, Christ died for us anyway. That's amazing. We weren't good. We weren't even decent. Scripture says we were hostile to God. Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. We were hostile to God because the flesh, the sinful nature, ruled us instead of the Holy Spirit. That's, what, that's the truth. So the Bible really doesn't help our self-esteem. It does not build us up in the flesh. It crushes us. It reveals our need for God. Scripture makes it crystal clear why Christ had to die. This is why the gospel is called the good news. It takes wretches like us and transforms us into children of God. Amazing. 
those of us who are believers, do we recognize who we were when Christ saved us? Are we in awe of God saving sinners like us? Are we in awe of the grave sacrifice God showed us? Truth is, we can't understand the gravity of what Christ has done for us if we don't see how truly bad we were. But let's go back to John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him. And this leads to point number four. God's love transforms those who believe. God's love transforms those who believe. This word belief in John 3.16 can be confusing to us. We believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Belief to us means mere mental assent. Something we know to be true. What I mean is some people believe in Jesus the way children believe in Santa Claus. It has no bearing on their life. Plus, we know from scripture that Satan and the demons believed. They know from first-hand experience that Christ is Lord. And they aren't children of God either. Because this belief does not lead to trusting. This belief does not lead to submitting. It doesn't lead to following Christ. The belief in Scripture is a wholehearted trust that Christ is both Lord and Savior. When we see Christ as Lord and Savior, we recognize our sinfulness and our brokenness for our rebellion against God, and we turn to Christ in repentance and faith. This is the belief that is found in Scripture. It is a living faith that walks and talks. It's not a dormant faith that does nothing. I wonder if we have this type of faith. A faith that says, my life is wrapped up in Christ. A faith in Christ that causes us to love others better than ourselves. A faith in Christ that calls us to live a life of holiness. A faith in Christ that leads us to walk in repentance. A faith in Christ that brings us to tears because of the grace that we receive on a daily basis. Does this sound like the type of faith we have this morning? Do we have authentic faith in Christ that lives, that honors God, that glorifies God, that is passionate for Christ? So another question that you may be pondering is, what about those who don't have faith in Christ? What happens to people who actually reject Christ? I mean, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world... Doesn't that mean that God loves everybody so everybody will be saved? This is known as universalism. That everyone will be saved because God loves the world. The problem is our verse clearly contradicts this view known as universalism. Let's look at John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those who believe in Christ will live with him for all eternity while those who reject Christ will be lost for all eternity. They will be in hell, the scriptures tell us. 
Think about how many people we know that do not know Christ. One day, they will be gone and then it will be too late to share Christ with them. We can't change hearts. I know that that's God's job. But it's our job to share God's love, to share the truths of Scripture with them, and to share the impending danger that is right around the corner. Are we sharing Christ with others? Are we loving others the way God loves us? The love that God pours out on us should overflow into our relationships as well. This leads to point number five. God's love lives and grows in his people. God's love lives and grows in his people. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. How do we imitate God? How do we live like Christ? Well, Paul here says we love. We live a life of love. We walk in love. That means whatever we do, God's love is attached to our words and our actions. But you may be wondering, what does the love of God look like in our daily actions and conversations? What are some of the characteristics and descriptions of this love we're talking about? Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Where we'll see what love looks like in real life. This is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Corinth. And he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what love looks like in real life. It's being patient. It's being kind. It's not wanting our own way. Not being resentful. Rejoicing in the truth and hating what is wrong, what is evil. Love hopes. Love trusts. Love endures all for God's glory. The question is how well are we loving others? What are some areas that reveal we aren't actually practicing biblical love? Maybe we lose our temper easily, or we hold resentment towards others, or maybe we fight for our own way. Scripture says when we practice the deeds of the flesh, we aren't loving like Christ. We aren't living like Christ. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin is sneaky. It's deceptive. When I sin, I'm usually the one who's deceived because I'm the one sinning. Sin is not always blatant and obvious. We may also have to look below the surface and examine ourselves because we can practice right actions and still be very wrong. What I'm trying to say is that the actions alone do not prove that we are being loving. 
The question is, what is our motivation? What is under the, the behavior that we're displaying? For example, 1 Corinthians 13.4 starts with, love is patient. When I am being patient, what is going on in the inside of my heart? Am I being patient to glorify God and love others? Or am I being patient because I, want someone, I don't want someone to reject me or think less or little of me? What is my motivation? Is it to love others and to love God? Or is it to love self? We don't want to assume right actions or right words equals right motives. Even as believers, we still have to battle and struggle against our sinful nature on a daily basis. But let's go back to John 3.16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The love of God has been poured out on us. His love should motivate us to love others. If we are in Christ, we are progressing forward. We aren't perfected yet, but we are learning. We're growing. We're becoming more like Christ. That means the love we have today should be more mature tomorrow. Amen? Again, point number five says God's love lives and grows in his people. The love of God is alive in us. This is a supernatural love produced by the Holy Spirit. That's why scripture calls it a fruit of the Spirit. When we are at home with the family, we're called to love like Christ. When we are at work, we are called to love like Christ. When we are spending time with our friends, we're called to love like Christ. When we're in conflict with others, we're called to love like Christ. When we're dealing with our enemies, we're called to love like Christ. Our life is wrapped up in love because our life is wrapped up in Christ. In conclusion, Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian who was very studied and learned, was asked at the Princeton lectures, what was the greatest thought that has passed through your mind? And it was said he paused for some time and he was thinking about the question. Then he raised his head and said, with all innocence and simplicity like a child, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. This morning, are we rejoicing, reveling in the fact that God loves us? That he knows us by name, that he watches over us, that he takes care of us, that he does what's best for us, that he made us, that he's involved in our daily activities, our life, that he gave his one and only son to pay the ultimate price for us because he loved us. May we be a people, may we be a church that is known for our love. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you for such love that's been poured out on people, on wicked people that don't deserve it. We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We definitely don't deserve you sending your son down to die on our behalf, to take away the wrath that we faced. Father, we thank you for your patience with us, your kindness, 
That you treat us now like a child and you discipline us like a child now, like one of your own children. We thank you for that. May we walk by your spirit. May we live a life of repentance and be a people who reveal the love of Christ to others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.